Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. Hello and happy Thursday and welcome to Arroya Office Hours. My name is Keisha. I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. Just a couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data you're seeing with your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in this exciting industry. Thank you everybody for in advance for not using this time for things like airing policy or industry grievances or asking about Arroya pricing, although please do book a demo and we'll talk all about that with you. Um, everybody who's on with us today, please feel free to type your questions in the chat at any time. And if your question is selected, we'll have you unmute yourself and ask away. Another thing you're going to want to type in the chat is your email address because we are host, we're going to have a raffle giving away one of our limited edition t-shirts. And uh, for first time question askers, we also want to send you an Arroyo hat. So drop your email address in the chat. Seth and Jason, how are you guys doing today? Doing pretty good. Yeah. Doing good, Keisha. How about yourself? Doing good. Um, you know who else is on? Another member of the Root Zone Club. We got Mandy in the house today. Hi, Mandy. What's up, Mandy? <laughs> hey, everyone. Yeah, the gang is all here. Um, you know, so Michael, just who's on the call with us today, Michael, you ra we saw that you raised your hand. Do you have a question? You wanna maybe you want to kick us off today? And if not, if you want to type it in the chat, I can ask. Oh, <laughs> all good. <laughs> Just saying hi. Perfect. Okay. Um, so we're going to start with a couple questions we got from Instagram. So Dope Farm submitted these two great questions this week. Um, so here they are, guys. How do you handle generative steering the first week of flower plants aren't rooted in? So we'll start with that one first. Ah, plants aren't rooted in. So this is probably one of the, the biggest differences uh, for the beginning of crop steering during flower is whether those plants are rooted in or not. So some of our clients are able to get their plants into the final media during the, the end of veg. And so they enter into flower with their plants rooted in. In this case, if our plants are not rooted in and we're transferring onto slabs right when we're flipping flower, transferring onto our one or two gallon cocoa medias, then usually we'll go through some steps called rooting in and, and dry down. And really what this is, is just a specific strategy in order to get the roots to reach out and gulf as much media as possible before we start pushing some more serious drybacks. Yeah, you know, and what that typically looks like is very little tiny irrigations, you know, one to three max. But you're probably going to start on about day two or three and watch that line. You're not going to actually bring it back up to uh, peak saturation like a P1 watering. We're just giving it a small bump to push oxygen down in and give basically the roots a path to follow. We want downward movement from the block into the slab. And we want to put a little water on every day just to keep that aerobic. You know, if we wait too long, we can get some nasty stuff growing in that, uh, that slab before we root in and we want to avoid that. But after about three to five days, you should be drying back close to 10 to 15% from your, you know, initial soak up on the block and at that point we know the plant's actually taken up water and we can start to hit it with some p1s and start steering it generatively yeah always you know good practice go in there and peek at your roots a little bit if you're in a slab go into this loaded end see if you're starting to see those those pop out of the the bottom and the side um if you're in, in something like a cocoa bag look down look down the side of it or just 
start looking down the, the drain holes or looking up at the drain holes from underneath and look for those uh, those nice white healthy roots and the, the you know white roots are going to indicate a good oxygen balance if your roots are starting to brown out and stuff then uh, you probably need to have a little bit more uh, more oxygen down in that root zone to keep them happy. Uh, conversely, you know if we start irrigating a, a little too much before the root zones engulfed, those those roots might get lazy on us a little bit, and they're not going to seek out uh, fresh media and try and engulf the entire volume of that substrate. Awesome, thank you for that. Um, so the second part of their question was, what do you do for generative steering end of flower when plants are drying back too hard? Yeah, so you know, generative strategy towards the end of flower to time that we like to call ripening. Um, Obviously, what we're doing there is is giving the plant a little bit of an end of life cycle, get as much uh, development in those trichomes, make sure they're getting amber, try and basically finish off the, the amount of product that can come out of there. So you know, the strategies, uh, if we are seeing you know, dry back too much, it's a time that you may not get really concerned about, about drying back too much. Uh, really, one of the things there is just thinking about how long you are running the, that last ripening uh, strategy for, you know, for some types of plants, you know, two weeks might be, might be a good amount of time. If you are hitting really heavy drybacks early on in that, in that two weeks, then yeah, you, you got to kind of make a compromise. Uh, you know, some plants are going to ripen up a little bit easier. Maybe we're on a five day, uh, five day ripening phase. In that case, if you're hitting really, really heavy drybacks that's a good sign that you've maximized the usage of your root zone and that uh, your plants are healthy and happy and uh, the end is near yeah and i think the the important thing to look at there is you know proper media to plant size so when we go into generative steering during ripening if our plant has overgrown the media you know that's what we're going to see is the plant drying back way too fast it's pulling water out quicker than we want it to and you know, one of the main strategies there is to come in at the end of the day, wait as long as we can until two hours or one hour before lights off and then hit it with a maintenance shot, you know, and it's okay to bring that all the way back up to peak saturation, but sometimes too, you might only need one 6% shot to correct going too low. And one thing to watch out for too, you know, right at the end there, we, those big drybacks are good, but we don't want to, for instance, push it so far that we wilt the plant. That's going to stall us out a little bit, maybe cause some mold. So we got to keep in mind like our media properties with rock wool, for instance. Yeah, we're going to push it farther and farther towards the end there on the drybacks because we're getting closer and closer. And we're not trying to push growth, but we still want that media to be able to hold enough water so that we have a reservoir to make it through the day. So an important part about going into ripening, especially in rock wool, is keeping your water content up higher earlier on so you don't have a low field capacity going in. And then remembering that you need to come all the way back up to field capacity with your P1s. And if you start drying down below that 35% or so, just know that you're not going to get the same field capacity. So you don't want to put yourself in a downward trend and then suddenly go vegetative the last week just because you're throwing water on it every hour to keep them from wilting. I love it. Direct advice from the Root Zone Club itself. Great. Um, so we have another question. Actually, it was submitted to us on Instagram, but it looks like Max is on with us today. So Max, I'm going to read your question, but you're welcome to 
or mute yourself and chime in if you're ready. Um, Max wrote us, I would like to hear a bit about vegetative steering in flower after stretch. We had a successful gen steer for the first 21 days. Flowers started forming by day 11, and the node spacing is the best it's been since. I'd like to keep this trend going with a good veg steer and then go back to gen and late flower. I currently only have a water content sensor in one of my one uh, my 1G cocoa pots and have one of the manual probes to read WC and EC. Max, you want to unmute yourself? Anything to add to that? Um, I have uh, just tro one Trollmaster um, water content sensor uh, for now. So that's what we're starting with. And it's, uh, it seemed to be helping. So I just want to continue on that positive trend. Gotcha. I think, you know, one of the biggest things when trying to switch from gen to vegetative steering or what I like to call bulking during flower is, uh, well, basically not going, you know, too terribly low on your water content and then timing it with the cues the plant gives us. So part of that's going in there every day, every, or every other day early on every day, probably, especially the first time you're running a strain and determine the day it actually stops stretching. When am I going in and measuring and saying, okay, has the exact same measurement today as it did yesterday, possibly as it did the day before, just as a little insurance. But we don't want to hit bulking until stretching has like fully stopped in the whole plant. And one thing you'll notice will happen sometimes is uh, you'll have side branches that don't stretch so much if you go into bulking early. And part of that's because those branches have matured. Their cell walls have hardened up. They're not going to stretch anymore. But your main apical meristem, if you your main branch, cola, if you haven't topped it, sometimes can keep stretching longer than those side branches. So if you flip into bulking too early, you're going to encourage more stretch, and that's what we want to avoid. So, you know, in vegetative steering, the more irrigations we can put on, the better, generally speaking. But also that timing is very important. If we miss the timing cue, um, we're just not going to get the desired results. Yeah, and to, to add on to the plant height timing cues, uh, you know, taking good crop registration is going to be the most helpful th way to improve strain by strain performance uh, in a facility. And so when we talk about when to take those measurements, I like to take them late through veg, um, late through the vegetative cycle, uh, you know, your 18-6, and then all the way up to a few days uh, or a few weeks into the, the vegetative uh, bulking phase. And uh, a really critical number there is what was the plant height uh, when you went from veg to flower. So when you flip to 1212, 12, what is that plant height? And that's how you're going to be able to maximize the plant size for a given strain um, based on that time frame, and then keep your consistency to hit that, that timing cue uh, for your change in crop steering practices uh, as a consistent uh, time to time for that strain. Yeah, and that, that record keep keeping is super important because I'll even run strains that I have friends that run, and uh, my stretch will last two, three days longer just because my room runs a little colder and uh, not making money on it, so I don't care if I <laughs> heat it up to gain that extra couple days. But that's the thing, you know, when you're getting information out there too, we don't really have, you know, the perfect standard of a grow room set. And even if we did, you know, the range of how well people have been able to achieve that is pretty wide. So it's about figuring out how it's working in your facility and then adapting to it. Sweet. Thank you, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Max, we're so glad you were able to join us today. And actually, since you were able to come on, if you are able to type your email address in the chat, we would love to reach out to you and send you an Amoria hat, maybe a T-shirt if you win the raffle. 
Sweet. Yes. Amazing. Yes. And a uh, reminder to everybody who's on with us, we want to hear from you. Ask us your questions. Let's, let's get you some answers. Okay. This next one, and it's a good one. This comes from Musa Magic. They write from Australia. I'm going to read the whole thing, but I think it's an opportunity for us to kind of give an overview. So they wrote, I have a couple of questions regarding pruning that I don't believe has been touched on. I'd like to get some clarity on how can the Arroyo platform impact our pruning SOPs? How has the data you guys have collected changed your pruning techniques? And what new pruning SOPs have you found were successful that have derived from the collated data captures in the platform? So Seth and Jason, yeah, like any, just kind of a general overview about how Arroyo can help with tasks like pruning. Yeah, uh, we do what's called a harvest group recipe. Uh, I also like to call it a grow cycle template. That's where you build out uh, all the desired parameters for the room, uh, irrigation strategies, and then uh, your tasking and IPM management for all harvest group. Uh, nice thing about this is you can pop in there the, the pruning uh, tasks, and you can make sure that you've got those on the, the appropriate days for different types of strains. You can drop mm -hmm. your SOP right into that Arroyo task. You can assign that task. Uh, you can set that task up to have an employee reminder so that your employees get a text message in the morning when they're supposed to be doing that type of activity. So that's one way that we kind of just help you organize, especially on larger grows, this becomes critical because we'll have so many offset cycles that it's hard to keep track of which room needs what type of tasking on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, it's also a good way to keep that visibility. You know, it's pinging your employee. You've got that information right in there. You can attach some pictures to detail what the appropriate uh, pruning looks like. Your employee can go in and, and do a completed task. They can time that task, say, hey, you know, when we spend 12 hours pruning, uh, we get less results than when we spend only eight hours pruning. Well, let's save that four hours. Let's do something else with it, have a little bit better product. And by tracking that and comparing it is really the only way that you'll know the best pruning practices for a strain. Yeah, you know, to build on that, we also calculate a rough idea of leaf area index. So you can see how quickly certain strains fill out. And also by looking at water intake by the plants on the graph, you can really start to see how much, uh, let's say, a late pruning is going to, you know, impact growth. So if we go strip a bunch of leaves around week six, we're going to see that plant really slow down on water uptake because it doesn't have the plumbing to continue to uptake it. It doesn't have that stomata. And then we can start to look at, okay, this run when we did that, here was our yield. All right, now also we've built in, just as Jason was saying, that recipe. Well, if you can go into the schedule in each harvest group and modify that for each individual run, you really have a precise idea of when things happen without flipping through notebooks and binders. And, you know, everything's so cyclical that when you've run one strain, let's say 50 times, and you've done a bunch of different things over the last couple of years to try to get that thing to perform the way you want, it starts to turn into, yeah, we did it a little late that time. Remember that day last spring? And it's like, well, what run was that? Oh, I don't know, 34? I thought it was 37, you know. So really that crop registration is key. And, uh, you know, just starting to analyze your data. And a big part of that, too, is not only having the graphs, but keeping your manual readings, taking pictures, just quantifying everything you can in your growth so you have all those points to compare. Again, it's all about making growers' lives easier. We love that, those questions. Thank you so much. Okay. Max just typed into the chat here. He wants to, he wrote, I'd last like to hear a bit about clone rooting drybacks because I don't believe clone sensors are a thing yet. What are your thoughts on that? 
So my favorite sensor for clones is a uh, kitchen scale or maybe your uh, your drug scale from selling baggies a while ago. And as long as you've got uh, a high enough capacity on that, you just put your clone tray on the scale, keep a reading of it, um, throw you know a tray that, that doesn't have any uh, plants but has substrate on that, use that as a zero aspect. And then obviously every one gram increase on the scale is a, a, a milliliter of water. And so you can track your drybacks by having the reference points of a dry media uh, clone tray with a fully saturated media clone tray. And then um, in between is going to be your different amounts of water content based on that scale weight. So that's a pretty easy way to do. Uh, it is obviously manual sampling, but uh, it's going to be a very accurate uh, assumption of, of water content. Obviously, the the plant weight itself, the, the biomass of the plant is going to play a role in, in that number as well. Um, it's fairly negligible at the size of those clones. So you can get, you get to be a pretty close, um, approximation of what processes you need for, uh, for irrigating clones. Yeah. And, you know, just remember too, that no matter how much you monitor that, you're still going to be irrigating, you're still going to be giving it water really regularly to promote an aerobic environment. Those plants aren't going to root if they just all get infected. So you can really use that weight as Jason was describing to start timing those irrigations. But you've got to remember, you know, if you're going three, four days without adding any water or flushing any oxygen through that root zone, you're probably going to see a lot of clone death. So you can push it certain ways, but, um, you know, keeping it as simple as possible is generally the key with clones and remembering, you know, important things like making sure you've got a tray or maybe some perlite under your rock wool in there to get good aeration at your root zone. One thing I like to do, personally and you know everyone's got a weird variation how they like to clone but for a lot of strains i actually like to push it down all the way through the block and pull it back up so that every time i flush water through the bottom of that tray i've got fresh oxygen going right to where those roots are trying to form but um another key thing there is just consistency you know so much of your cloning is in the technique i i wish there was uh an irrigation recipe that was perfect for every strain. Obviously that's quite different, but in my experience, a huge part of cloning success is consistency with the people that are doing the clones. That part of it is, uh, uh, someone told me once that horticulture is an art and a science, and that's very much the art side of it. Clean, cleanliness during cloning is going to be a play a big part as far yes. as that consistency goes. Um, so, you know, as far as, the, the healthier moms is going to play a big part into your clone consistency. Uh, how well that you're keeping clean so that you're not infecting some of those plants. Um, and then, like Seth is saying, making sure that, that you've got high-quality staff that uh, is very prudent in their process for, for cloning. And crop uniformity, it's a parameter that you can apply all the data that you want to a set. You can crop steer as, as perfectly as you want, but the more uniform that crop is, the, the easier all of your analysis is going to be and overall the, the better yield that you'll get. Yep. We want to start out with the best foundation. Um, if your plant's as healthy as possible, you don't need to uh, put band-aids on it later to try to get it in shape. Awesome. Great. Thank you. All right. Our friend Michael is on with us today and typed into the chat here. What are your feelings on increasing lights on time to increase DLI and what phases would you run it? Um, 
So let's just start from the beginning. You know, when you're running clones, you can do 24 hours lights on. We see it every once in a while. Um, through the veg phase, 18.6, pretty hard to beat. And then since cannabis, uh, other than autoflowers, are photoperiodic type plants, you really need to keep with that 12.12. Um, so as far as, you know, modifying lights on time, I don't usually recommend it, um, you know, unless you're just trying to get a few more hours during your veg cycle. Best thing you can do to increase your GLI is uh, run a little higher intensity lights. Yep, exactly. I mean, that, and basically with all strains, there's a level of determinants. So basically cannabis is generally an indeterminate plant until we switch to 12-12 and it's got a timer. Whereas autoflower plants are determinate. And then there's a lot of strains that land somewhere in between those two growth phases, depending on how many copies of those determinant genes they have. So you're introducing, unless you're running one strain over and over and over forever, you're introducing a variable that's going to be really hard to track and uh, really just create a lot of work to try to analyze how that's affecting every single strain you've got in the room. Great. Michael, thank you so much for your question. Um, I know we, we are good friends with you, but if you want to be entered into our t-shirt raffle, drop your email address in the chat. All right, we got a question from Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins. I don't know if it's the Bilbo or not, but they write, when searing in a medium made from peat, cocoa, and a lot of organic matter, I am seeing VWC data that left me initially very perplexed. I think I have tracked the VWC to a high e CEC slash TEC and organic matter content of the substrate. My question is, have you ever crop steered in a high CEC substrate? What was it like for you? So we're just going to break this down uh, for everyone in the audience. CEC is uh, cation exchange capacity. Uh, a simple way to explain it is talking about uh, how much charge in the substrate, how, how it holds on to nutrients, right? So on one end of the spectrum, We've got rock wool, which has a very, very low, almost zero CEC, meaning that when we make changes to uh, irrigation, the incoming irrigation in that substrate, it's going to be very reactive. So if we drop uh, drop to zero EC on the feed, that rock wool is going to very, very quickly get down to zero EC. Now, uh, you know what, what it sounds like um, Bilbo Baggins is working with is. Uh, Organic material, that's going to be on the other side of the spectrum where you know you can drop to something like a zero uh, EC and it's going to take a long time in order to drop the EC in that substrate. Uh, so that, that organic matter is, you know, this is why we see time release nutrients um, and additives in soil substrates is simply because the nutrients are going to be hanging on to that substrate uh, for a while. Yep. And I mean, that's why when you look at like a lot of uh, bigger ag industries, you know, we're putting on salt fertilizers a couple times a year. And partially that's just because we're working with soil. And it sounds like with Bilbo Baggins, you're working with something. It's a soilless mix, but it's amended to the point where it has a similar CEC as soil. So we do have customers that do that. What you're looking at, though, is crop steering purely through irrigation inputs and less through uh, your direct injection of, C of uh, EC into the root zone. So, yes, you can crop steer, but not quite to the degree of control that you would have with other systems. Yeah, and one, one of the best things to think about as well is just the reactivity uh, of that crop steering. So, uh, if, if we take crop steering literally as steering, well, Rockwell is going to be your Lamborghini. It's going to steer pretty quickly. Uh, the, the higher the CEC that we're working with, um, 
that, that water holding capacity and something that's organic, uh, like you're working with, it's going to steer a little bit more like a semi truck. So it just keeps a heads up on, on what's coming ahead. Uh, cause you're going to have to do a, a little bit of predictions, uh, in order to make that crop steering happen as fast as something uh, that's purely hydroponic. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Bilbo posted another question here. They are asking, do you have any future plans for DO readings within the Arroyo architecture? SOPs. Thoughts on that? DO being dissolved oxygen. So this is the amount of oxygen that is dissolved usually in something like a feed tank or an injection line. Uh, as far as plans to, to read, dissolved oxygen in Arroyo. Uh, we are working on a product that uh, is going to support a number of different sensor inputs. Uh, so something like a four to 20 milliamp, which a lot of the, the DO sensors are, uh, can be plugged into it. Um, we don't currently have a timeline on the release for that, but, but it is something that we'd, we'd love to be logged in the system. Yeah. And to add to that for uh, <clears throat> SOPs there, it's on the list for sure. Uh, having SOP and selectable task lists so you can save stuff like that. Although right now, when you build out your recipe, uh, my favorite move is just copy and paste the SOP for each task I create in there. Once that's in the system, I can copy that recipe, modify it for my different strains and not have to re-enter those SOPs and also have those SOPs available whenever an employee clicks on the task. Awesome, thank you. Bilba also just posted, do you have an API connection? Yeah, we do. So we offer an open API. It's going to provide any of the sensor data coming from our system. So hit us up and uh, we can get a token built for your account. And you can start pulling that data in to, to any system that you'd like. We've thought of everything so far. <laughs> awesome, Bilbo. Thank you so much for your questions and drop your email address in the chat. We want to send you a hat and enter you in the drawing for a t-shirt. All right. And then just a reminder, everybody else who's on with us, we want to hear from you too. Post some questions in the chat, but we have a few more from Instagram in the meantime here. Nate Meltz wrote in, hey, Arroyo team. I was wondering if you know if purple stems um, and slow growth have anything to do with poor EC and water content of soil. Thank you. I've been trying to get to the bottom of this issue, but I keep getting the same problems. Um, possibly this is going to be very, very strain dependent and a lot of other parameters <clears throat> such as uh, room temperature and that type of thing. Uh, good way to check if it is related to your nutrient levels is keep an eye on your pH of the runoff. So if you see your, your pH and runoff quite a bit higher than your feed pH, this could be an indication that you might be feeding at a little bit too low of EC and the, the nutrient composition is, is coming out of balance. So that plant be, might be hungry for specific ions or cations um, in in solution, and uh, and that's why you'll see that that pH drift up. Uh, so yeah, uh, if everything else checks off, then try giving your plant a little bit more food. Yeah, I mean that can be part of it. I also like to just look at everything else in in there, you know. So do we have? Are we maintaining a good enough temperature early on? You know, let's look at all the factors that can inhibit that plant's growth because uh, unless you just switched your fertilizer and now you're suddenly encountering this problem, um, it's not necessarily going to be fertilizer. Like, that's what we always want to jump to, right? Like, oh, I'm going to throw some CalMag at this and it's going to fix it. But uh, sometimes it's a totally different issue. And when we're talking about plants with purple stems or let's say purple petioles, 
Some plants will express anthocyanin as a, you know, a form of EC stress. Some it's cold stress. Uh, <clears throat> some just produce a lot of anthocyanin. So when we just look at, say, red stripes on the stems, purple petioles, that's not necessarily telling me that you have a deficiency. But if the plant's growing slow, I mean, there's a few things I would look at. Um, unless you've got, you know, light yellowing, you know, your classic rust spots from calcium deficiency, any of that, I would really look as uh, Bilbo Baggins put it, <laughs> look at your water content. See if you're overwatering and not giving those roots enough oxygen early on to fully develop. Um, a lot of times when we see plant growth slow, it's, I mean, it can even be pathological, but generally speaking, you know, the rooting in, especially if you're in rock wool, is something that people struggle with the most. As Jason was saying, people will put it on. If you overwater that slab right away, you've got a re weak root system. You're just not going to get that explosive growth that we're looking for. Got to exercise those roots. Get that plant, uh, plant working for its water, and it's going to pull water hard. Well, you know, something to remember, too, those plants... Uh, those roots don't have chlorophyll. They've got a, they have cellular respiration just like you and I, and they need oxygen to do their job. So if we're not getting it, you know, and that's part of what the dryback is, we're penetrating that root zone with oxygen. We're giving them everything they need to grow. If they're weak, they just won't support growth. That's great. I love it. Um, I really love it when um, folks who are on with us type in comments as we go to, because this is about a community. We like to hear from all of you and what's working for you too. All right, my friends, we got a few questions in about sensors. So Canacost, they asked, um, I bought four of the Solus 12 off Amazon. It says it's from Forever Green Indoors. I'm curious why when I completely submerge all three prongs, the app only reads 70% moisture. It's in a 100% water content and still reading at 66 to 70%. So the, the substrate sensor it's not designed to be reading the water content of a completely water solution. Um, and so that's the, the basis of it. What's happening is that sensor is calibrated for soilless substrate. And, uh, and that calibration curve is probably what you're seeing. Another thing that is just going to depend on the size of the water container that you put it in. Um, that sensor is reading one about one liter volume of influence. So volume of influence being the amount of substrate around the sensor that it is it is capturing for that reading value. Um, so obviously, if you're in a solo cup, you're going to be reading quite a bit of air because it's nowhere near one liter. Great. Um, and actually, our, our next questions are about the, uh, the Terrace 12. So French Flair asks, they want to know how to clean the Terrace 12 and what to avoid. Great question. So pretty much any of your cleaning products that you have on your site, you, know, you can use hydrochloric acid, you can use bleach. My favorite is probably just isopropanol alcohol and, uh, and just wipe them down. One of the things that you want to avoid is using anything that's too abrasive on there. So let's avoid Scotch-Brite. Um, let's avoid you know sandpaper or anything that's um, a little bit more aggressive. Uh, it can modify the surface parameters of those prongs, and that'll that'll change what your readings should be. If you have some really stubborn salt buildup on there, you can just let that Taros 12 head um, soak for an hour, soak overnight, and it's not going to hurt the, the sensor itself. Um, obviously, with the the remote module. We don't like to ever see those being submerged, but the the three pronged sensor head itself is it's is fully waterproof. So leave it in a bucket of uh, 
Hydrochloris or any of your other favorite cleaning products that are on site? Honestly, dish soap works great. Soak it in there for a while, give her a scrub, let them out to dry, and then use your sanitizing agent of choice for a wipe down. And like Jason said, just don't, typically don't try to submerge your radio transmitter in whatever cleaning solution you're using. Obviously, we want to sanitize those, but a wipe is totally fine. Yeah, we've gotten a couple comments here. Michael wrote, uh, the hypochlorous acid works great for everything. Sounds like you can relate to that one. Um, and then Max wrote, um, when when calibrating a sensor in cocoa, flood to field capacity, and once it stops dripping, calibrate to 100%. Follow-up to that would be, is 100% something we ever actually want to achieve outside of calibration? I've seen lots of graphs that don't go over, go over 60 to 70%. So what we measure is actually volumetric water content. We're looking at the total volume of the media. Um, what you, I think you're referring to max is saturation. So 100% of the water holding capacity of that media would be the saturation. So the, like, if you're saying you've seen a lot of graphs, don't go over 60 to 70%. Um, that is 100% saturation for that media. What we're doing is looking away to compare a bunch of different medias to each other. And, uh, also just so you know, our sensors do, or the T12 specifically does not calibrate. And part of that is because we're looking at a standard, which is volumetric water content, not a relative reading, which would be saturation. So the simple way I like to think about it is um, if I have a gallon of substrate, then when I'm at 60% water content, that means 60% of my substrate is water. The remaining 40% is going to be a little bit of air pockets and solid material itself. So if it's uh, you know, cocoa, that means that the remaining 40% is cocoa and air, and there's 60% in there. Love it. We are on a roll today. So many good questions coming in. All right, Bilbo posted another good one. Two, I'm going to start with the first one. Can you speak to osmotic pressure within the various substrates and how it relates to room and air VPD? Oh, you're, you're going to get a little detailed on us here, big guy. Um, we need the whiteboard for this one. <laughs> Basically, when you have a higher salt content, it's harder for the plant to pull up that water, right? So we need more mechanical suction from the air above to pull that water through the plant. Um, yeah, it's, it's basically that simple as both, as one goes up, so does the other for the plant to uptake water. And then the difference between resistive water. Content. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Second question. Can you explain the difference between resistive, resistive water content sensors, VWC, TDR, matrix potential of water? Sure. So we'll just go over kind of some of the, the stuff he's talking about here. Um, TDR would be a time domain reflectometry. Uh, some of the substrate and soil sensors in the market use TDR. We actually use a, a capacitive reading uh, across our prongs for determining uh, volumetric water content for that VWC. Um, uh, and this is actually going to be a little bit different reading than matrix potential of water. So matrix potential is, is actually talking about the, you know, the characteristics of a substrate, um, how it is holding on to water. And so, you know, matrix potential is great when we're out in the field because we know the amount of uh, stress that is being applied to the, the root zone. So if we have, uh, if we're measuring water uh, matrix 
potentially, excuse me, um, in the soil, it's the vacuum that these roots needs to apply to the soil in order to pull water. And so if we're in something like sand, then even at very low water contents, that water is available to the roots at a, uh, a much, we'll call it higher matrix potential. So matrix potential is uh, measured in, in negative uh, pressure numbers. And so, you know, higher matrix potential is going to mean that the plant water, um, the, the water availability to the plant is, is easier. So that's something like clay that can have a higher matrix potential number, even when it gets to lower water contents. Um, did I say clay? I meant sand. sand. Uh, so the other spectrum where I'm going to is clay and something like clay, the substrate molecules themselves are, are hanging on to the water, uh, quite a bit more. And so we're going to see the, the plant get to a closer wilting point, even at a higher water content, <coughs> simply because it's more difficult for the roots to pull that uh, moisture out of the substrate. Yeah. And the beauty of the soilless media that we work in, um, it, you have to go pretty low on water content for the uh, matrix potential to actually play a factor in how hard the plant has to suck on it. I mean, it's it's a pretty beautiful thing compared to trying to crop steer. You know, back to trying to crop steer in soil. If we uh, did that, we'd really need to get a soil test. I mean, if not, we at least go out there and, you know, lick some dirt, roll it between our fingers, <laughs> try to figure out what we're dealing with. Yeah, and this is why it's nice to be working in hydroponic medias is obviously run to run they're very consistent and even across the brands we don't need a matrix potential sensor in order to determine the um the water recurse water release curves uh, so we've run matrix potential curves on rock wools and cocos and have a very good idea of what those numbers look like as far as a, a volumetric water content number can translate into so, you know, matrix potential sensors are can usually be a little bit more finicky in installation. And so for any of the, the known media types, we just simply use a Terras 12 to achieve the same type of actionable data that we would out of a, a matrix potential sensor. Awesome. Thank you. Stizzy employee 007 just posted a question here. If a rock wall slab reaches max field capacity at 80% after saturation and it's left to dry back below 35%, how much capacity is lost generally to the material becoming hydroponic? Hydro, excuse me, hydrophobic. Yeah, so uh, obviously hydrophobic meaning that it, uh, it repels water. Hydrophobic being the fear of water and um, naturally uh, blown basalt fibers uh, have hydrophobic properties. So any of the rockwell manufacturers actually impregnate um, some wetting agents into that when the product is shipped so that when it initially gets soaked up, it can reach field capacity and take full advantage of those properties. That wetting agent is washed out the first time that you fully soak up the slabs. And so, yeah, going down past 35% is, is when we'll see those hydrophobic properties be reintroduced. And it's going to be a little bit different number just depending on the, the model and manufacturer of that rock wool. Um, if you were at 80% and you didn't go below 35, you probably haven't jeopardized the, the substrate yet. And you should be able to see you know, that saturation or the field capacity point get pretty close back up to what you've seen. Yeah, you should, I mean, consistently, especially like if you got one big batch, you'll see it pretty, pretty evenly, you know, like let's say you dry down to 30%, you can expect probably instead of 65% field capacity, 
which would be pretty typical for a plant that's, you know, starting to root in or rooted in, you might see 55. So, you know, we already lost maybe 10% there. But the reality is, you know, you, at this point, if you've been doing that, you can actually go back and look at your graphs and quantify how much you lose every time you've got a dryback that goes 5% farther than where you want to, 10% farther than where you want to. Great. So many good questions about substrates. Um, we have one more question that we got from Instagram. Um, before I ask it, I just want to remind everybody who's on with us. We've got, you know, just a few more minutes. We want to hear your questions and get those answered. So please feel free to drop those in the chat. Um, Ecstatic Pax wants to know, can your soil, mo soil moisture sensor be used in peat? Sure, it can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if it is... 100% peat mix, then, you know, just keep in mind that the, the calibration might be slightly um, off because we do it for a, a soilless media that is supposedly not, uh, not of any organic matter um, or any organic characteristics, I guess would be a better way to say that. Uh, so yeah, just, you know, keep in mind that, you know, your EC values might be a little bit higher or lower than you're actually reading. Simply due to that calibration, but it's going to be very effective for water content and monitoring the dynamics of your EC. Yeah, I'll be honest. We have uh, not a bunch, but a few clients that are still running peat mix bases, and it's it's actually quite fine. Like right now, with the market demand on cocoa, you do get quite an in inconsistency in CECs and cocoa. None of them are very high, but they range. And peat moss generally has some overlap there. Peat moss itself is very very low in CEC. Um, it's actually one of the first traditional soilless mixed components that people were using. And then we decided, you know, maybe it's bad to strip mine peat moss bogs because they take like, you know, thousands and thousands of years to regenerate. So if that there wasn't the negative environmental con consequence of peat moss, we'd probably see a lot more of it in the industry, to be perfectly honest. It's a good consideration. They all have different environmental uh, environmental impacts, huh? Amazing. Okay. Well, that's the last question we got submitted this week. Seth and Jason, thank you so much. And to everyone who joined us today and participated in this discussion, thank you so much as well. This is really what it's about, really spotlighting what's going on with your grow and uh, hearing from the experts about what works and what doesn't. Seth, Jason, any other final words before we sign off for the day? We did have one more question pop in if we uh, want oh, to take the time to grab it here. Oh, yeah, we do. Thank you, Elias. Elias wrote, would you guys recommend pre-soaking pots, cocoa, before loading plants? I'm having trouble keeping them saturated without overwatering them and getting them to root. Uh, I'm a little confused by the question. Uh, we'll just go over kind of some of our usually recommended processes here. Uh, pre-soaking cocoa. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my my favorite way to do it is at least a day before I'm planting, especially if it's a compressed cocoa. Um, get those things nice and soaked out. If they already have drain slots in them, you might want to hit them two or three times uh, to fully uncompress that cocoa and, and make sure that it's reached the field capacity as best as possible before we are ready to plant into it. Uh, if they are they don't have drain slots already, just fill it up. Um, and, uh, you know, wait 24 hours, cut some drain slots. And uh, at any time after that, you can start uh, transplanting your plants into that media. Yeah, my, my favorite way to hydrate cocoa, honestly, is with a flood and drain table. 
set all your bags out, fill it up, be patient, go wait about an hour, come back, hit her with the hose, drain it off, make sure you've hit field capacity, hit it again with the hose if you need to with that drain plugged, and then go ahead and check it again right before you transplant. But like Jason said, it's nice to do a day in advance. And honestly, that works out better with most logistics situations. Uh, like if I've got a big room to do, I try to get everyone set up, everything set up before lunch, fill the tables and then go to lunch. So no one can be too much in a hurry and pull it out. You know, it's uh, it's unfortunately just a patience game. You can try as hard as you can to uh, hydrate, and I've done it, you know, hydrate those cocoa blocks with a hose, break them up by hand, all kinds of things. You're better off just being patient about it and planning for it to take, you know, at least an hour to do that full hydration. And it's, it's cheap insurance, right? It's one hour that you go do something else. At least an hour. Yeah, <laughs> preferably as long as you can let it go. So hard to be patient in cannabis cultivation, isn't it? Elias, thank you so much for your question. Drop your email address in the chat. We want to send you a hat. We got another question here um, from Susie Employee 007. They want to know, do Arroyo sensors need to be calibrated or serviced between harvests? Nope, they do not. Uh, we always do recommend that people clean the substrate sensors, uh, both for you know an accuracy of the sensor and just for sanitation between uh, between those cycles. Um, you know, at most fourteens, they they should not need any maintenance. If you are doing uh, a room fogging for sanitation, then you might put that uh, at most fourteen in a Ziploc bag or simply pull it out of the room when. Uh, when that uh, is going on in there. Yeah. And just wipe it down, you know, manually. It's uh, it's pretty simple. What is the preferred medium to be used with Arroyo sensors? I love that question. All. Yeah. I, I think the better way to answer that is how, how detailed can you operate your facility? And, you know, if you very, very, well-maintained parameters, set points for uh, environment and irrigation, then you can run something like Rockwool. Um, if you know, you're know you running in a, a greenhouse where you may not have quite perfect control over those environmentals, a lot of times the forgivingness of cocoa can, uh, can be in your advantage. Generally, though, uh, a soilless mix is, gonna, is what's going to allow you to crop steer the hardest just because, you know, we... We've extended it beyond that irrigation control into fine-tuning EC control. That's great. And I missed uh, Michael's comment earlier um, referring to being patient, but he, uh, he wrote, we set two by four trays on carts, three high, soak in the trays and transplant onto tables the following day. Love Sounds it. like a good strategy. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Michael. Honestly, biggest thing, Michael, just start sticking those before you transplant. Uh, especially if you're in cocoa, just because of that batch to batch inconsistency that we tend to see pretty much regardless of brands you go with. Most of them stay pretty close, but hey, if one batch gets you at 48 and the other at 51, that's nice to know. That's going to change your set points, particularly probably your alert set points. Uh, we got a question asking about what you guys actually prefer, personally prefer to grow in. What's your favorite medium to grow in, Seth and Jason? Cocoa, Rockwell, uh, like I said, depends on the, what kind of facility I get to operate in. Mm -hmm. um, out in my hoop house, cocoa and or more organics are 
definitely the way I need because I, I don't have a ton of uh, control equipment and it gets cold at night down in, in here. And um, if uh, if I'm in the laboratory, then, then Rockwell's pretty nice. Yeah, I, I basically second that. You know, I'm uh, depending on how reliable your irrigation system is. I tend to lean towards cocoa until I've, with that particular system, pulled off a successful run <laughs> with no irrigation breakdowns. But uh, in an ideal world, I, I prefer rock wool, especially in an indoor setting. You know, it's just, it's less mess. Like that's my biggest gripe with growing with cocoa for years and years indoors, uh, sweeping, lots and lots of sweeping. And then, you know, it's not like it's the grossest grit on your hands, but it's just messy compared to rock wool. There it is. How Seth and Jason do it. Hope everybody took notes. All right, you guys, I think we're at the end of our questions. Again, thank you to everybody um, who joined us. Uh, we, we are on for an hour. Bilbo, if you have any other questions, you got a few more minutes to, <laughs> to ask. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you all so much. We're, we're getting so much great feedback and, and conversation in the chat. Um, yeah, Jason, Seth, any, any final advice for the day? No, it's getting into pretty deep growing season for anyone in hoop houses. Uh, hope you all have had a really nice spring and, and ready to, to rock and roll. And uh, for everybody else, keep doing what you're doing. Jump on, watch our, watch our shows. Go listen to some of our client success uh, case studies. It's always great to hear about other people in the industry. And I uh, uh, hope, hope you always learn and enjoy these sessions. Yeah, get, get out there and have fun. Don't get stuck growing too hard. It's finally turning to summer up here in the Northwest. And I got to say, I'm uh, pretty glad I get weekends right now. I'm going to brag a little bit. <laughs> weekends, vacation, we want all that. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Don't, Thank don't you so Don't burn much, yourself Seth out. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I said, don't burn yourself out on growing. That's the worst. Yeah. You got you to gotta take rests. Seth and Jason, so good to see you guys. Mandy, thank you for being in the house with me today. And thank you to everyone who joined us. Um, I think I have everybody's email address except one. If Bilbo wants to stick around and let me know their contact info, I'd love to collect it because um, we want to send you an Arroyo hat. Um, but everybody who joined us, thank you so much for joining Arroyo Office Hours Live. If you have any questions about Arroyo, how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process or any other topic that you would like covered in a future session, post it in the chat. Shoot us an email at support at metergroup.com or send us a DM on Instagram. We want to hear from you. We record every session. We'll email everybody in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion. And it'll also be on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do spread the word. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.